DeSantis and Disney, Dominion and Fox, and the dire warning from Elon Musk on artificial intelligence. Those are just some of the topics we're covering today. Plus, we've got the latest update on where the U.S. Supreme Court landed on the abortion pill case. Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, with our president, Victoria Cobb. Well, before we jump in today, I did want to hear about how your college visits went. I know you guys went out and visited colleges with your oldest. How did that go? Yeah, we've been kind of on that track for a couple of months now. We've hit about five or six colleges, and it's going well, I guess. I mean, it's a process, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of research and um, just thinking about where she would thrive next, you know, and she's yeah. a junior, so like in a year and a half. You feeling a little sad as a mom yet? Yeah, a little bit, because, you know, your time is limited with your child. And, you know, I just watch all these parents of seniors. So right now they're getting really close to graduation and their kids know where they're going to college and they're all, you know, like literally weepy at every event. <laughs> like they yeah. go to a, a sporting event and it ends and they're just, well, you know, because it's going to be one of the last. And I, I, I feel it. I know yeah. it's going to be bad. <laughs> I'm going to well, be that mom. How about Elizabeth? I know she had told you before that she wanted to do road trips. So is she kind of raring to go or is she starting to feel a little sad about um, there's some things I might miss. She definitely is aware that she will. I mean, you know, she's a very independent child, but it's interesting because on Easter weekend, she noticed all the people back from college and she was like, mom, if I go really far away, I might not be able to come back for Easter weekend. Yeah. And that's true. We're looking at schools where she would have to get on a plane to go to, you know, for breaks. And so, yeah, we wouldn't come back all the time. So she's, and she thinks about sibling events and she thinks about missing oh, yeah. like her younger siblings doing stuff. So she's definitely starting to, it's, it's getting a little bit more real. Yeah. All right. Well, I have to ask, did you guys run into any of this political correctness where you had to put on a pronoun on your name tag or anything like that? We thankfully did not run into having to do pronouns on name tags. I don't think Elizabeth would have liked the scene that would have occurred when I, when I would not do that. But um, I think that means we're picking generally schools. I mean, we're aiming very carefully to not go towards schools that we know are heavy on the woke and heavy on the liberalism. But I will say this. Um, we did go to one school that had those safe zone um, stickers, you know, that you put on professor offices doors. And I just there were several in a row. And I just sat there and looked at the one that didn't have one. And I thought, I, I feel bad for this professor who just because he's just doing his job, somebody might think he's, quote, right, unsafe. unsafe. Yeah. Like, that's terrible. So I just that kind of stuff makes me crazy. So I, I mean, overall, I would say what I was expecting and what we've seen has been it's what we've seen has been better than what we talk about a lot with some of these colleges. And I think that means we're in the, the general right direction. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> trying think to pick that's... some Christian schools and things like that makes it yeah. easier. I don't think that's easy for parents nowadays. No, it's but... not. The, the list of colleges you want to send your child to is very small. Yeah. Uh, it is not, you know, I, I feel like when I went to college, there were a million choices and people didn't think, oh, we have to rule this out because they're crazy. <laughs> but now you have to actually literally look at schools and go, nope, they're crazy. You can't go to a crazy yeah. school. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. let them turn you into a crazy person, you know. Yeah, sad. Well, God bless you and other parents going through that endeavor right now. But jumping right into our program today, we wanted to try something a little different, just kind of mix it up a little bit. So I thought it would be fun to do a round robin kind of thing where I'm just going to throw all these topics at Victoria and see what comes out of her mouth. And it's going to be fun. <laughs> but before we get into that, I did want to give... A little plug to stay tuned to the end of the show because we've got that update that we promised you 
on where the, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court landed on the abortion pill case. So make sure you stay tuned for that. We've got one of our lawyers that is going to update you on all that, that the ins and outs of where that's at and what's happening. Um, but without further ado, let's get into this round robin. Topic number one. Disney versus DeSantis. Okay, that's a fun one. Okay, so um, there's been some new revelations. Um, you know, uh, I guess we got to backtrack and at least lay the groundwork. If you recall, this all started when Disney decided they wanted to jump into legislation and start advocating on the wrong side of children um, in a bill that was dealing with not teaching about items re around sexuality in young grades, right? So that's kind of where all this started. And then DeSantis was kind of like, if you're going to play this game, why are we giving you all these tax breaks, right? So that that's kind of the original part of this. And there's sort of a new revelation that's kind of DeSantis created kind of an oversight board to look into all these exceptions to the law, really, that Disney gets. And long story short, right before that board took over, they did the, all these last-minute, 11th-hour kind of contracts. And the newest one they found is that they they set a new contract where Disney can regulate its own utilities until 2032. So um, they're now working on a bill to sort of say all that stuff is invalid. Anything that was created in this last second sort of trying to work around DeSantis would be invalid. Um, but... I think it's an interesting discussion, honestly, about the role of being pro-business versus crony capitalism. I mean, there's an interesting thing going on there, um, and I've heard commentators on multiple sides of this just really evaluating what, how do we, how do we make a great environment for business, but not actually pick a winner over. I mean, you know, there's mm -hmm. also think about Florida. They also have Bush Gardens in Tampa, and Bush Gardens mm -hmm. doesn't have their own land. It doesn't get to regulate its own utilities, and so anyway, it's an interesting conversation. Well, because you do hear some people saying this is overreach on DeSantis' part. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, it's I've, I think it's wonderful to have a governor pushing back against these corporations that throw themselves into the culture wars. So that is the really positive side. And, you know, I've seen a lot of articles saying he's not going to win this, um, which I don't know how it's going to play out. I, I can't say whether he'll win or lose against Disney. But uh, others say, well, he's he's kind of poked the bully and he's he's now he's got to He's, he's got to stay on it and he, he's got to fight it all the way out. And there's folks that say that it affects his presidential run, you know, that, that it might not play out well on his nomination contest or in the general. Um, I, I, think, I think it was overall a very good move because we need governors to tell these companies, sit down, stay out. And certainly we're not going to make you a favored status in our state if you're going to, you know, come in on the side of harming kids. Well, it's interesting because uh, if you remember way back what happened uh, with uh, Vi he wasn't vice president then, then Governor Pence. Right. When oh, he Indiana. on the religious freedom thing and um, he got serious pushback on that and he he did not take the decision. Yeah, we were approach. devastated that yeah. he didn't push back. So the opposite is exactly that Indiana situation. And in that case, a lot of a lot of those cases, there were several states happening, but that was the big one and it was it was sports. It was NCAA yeah. and groups that were saying, We're not gonna come into your state if you have a certain kind of environment, right. which was around transgender issues and bathrooms. But it was just I mean, we needed him to push back because that's that really set back the movement on this issue for a while. So a lot of officials did not push back. Yeah. But this time with what DeSantis is doing, do you feel like this is going to help kind of draw that line in the sand for other companies to maybe think twice before they try to intimidate a conservative governor? Do you feel like it might have that effect moving forward? I sure hope so. I hope there are good things. I mean, this is one we talked about. I mean, we've talked about the Budweiser thing, you know, and them 
stepping into the culture war and their ads and and just receiving backlash from the public. I hope that these things are starting to send a message to companies that say, look, you don't need to. You absolutely don't need to jump in on the left side, even if you have left wing folks on your board and in your, you know, they've, they've gotten to the C-suite, you know, and they've affected these companies and these companies are making bad decisions. Yeah. All right. Next topic, Dominion and Fox. Oh, gosh. All right. So Dominion and Fox. Um, so lay the groundwork. Basically, you've got a situation where Dominion voting machines is, the, is what they do. Uh, they basically sued Fox and went at them because they accused them of libel because Fox spent a long time saying our elections were rigged and these machines were a part of the elections not playing out in a fair way. And so um, this was set to go to court. The jury was selected. The, they were in the courtroom, I mean, the whole nine yards. And then they did come to a settlement. Um, I think it's something like $787 million. Mm-hmm. That's not a small settlement. Settlement. I'm sitting, sitting there thinking, man, alive. Like, that's a settlement. They must have thought they could be in for uh, a lot. Um, and I guess on, on, in the perspective of Fox is probably we didn't have to put our key anchor people like t- we don't want we don't want a scenario where Tucker Carlson's on the stand Sean and, Hannity. And, and they're trying to say that he lied because it, it loses so much credibility. Now, uh, Dominion apparently claimed that in the settlement, Fox admitted that they were not completely honest. That's what they're that's what they're saying. But they but then they don't have to force individual anchors to what did you say? And was it right? Um, but we have to remember, there's still another lawsuit out there for Fox. They're not done with this. Smartmatic or something like it's another set of voting machines is going at Fox. So they've got yeah. this is an expensive situation for them. Yeah. So just because this was settled, I don't think this is really eliminating the concern in a lot of people's minds that there's some kind of bigger election integrity issue out there. Right. Election integrity is such a huge issue. Machines are one component of a larger concern uh, in Virginia. The concern is mostly about all the changes to our laws that make it so easy to have voter fraud. So election integrity is still going to be a huge issue no matter how whether this settled or it went to trial, no matter what happens with the next one, people are concerned over their ability to cast a vote and that that vote's going to be counted and there aren't going to be extra votes and all the things that you hear. And so um, I don't think this does anything in that space. It is interesting um, just from a journalism perspective, I guess. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, usually journalists feel pretty protected because I come from a journalism background and and you feel pretty protected to uh, pursue the story, uh, really put things out there, the storyline out there, because a defamation lawsuit or uh, proving slander, that really has a high bar legally because you have to show malice or actual bad intention uh, with why something got reported in error or there was um, something that wasn't true put out there. You have to show there was bad intention behind that. So it's interesting that Fox News did chose not to, to fight this all the way that they settled. And you kind of mentioned some of maybe their reasons for that. Um, but I just kind of wonder how this is going to impact journalistically coverage of politics, elections moving forward. Yeah, we want them to be aggressive. We want them to chase a story down. But we do want them to be honest. We want to know that our news, wherever we come from, is accurate. And so, again, this this gets into the challenges we have with news in general. And we've talked about this before, probably, but uh, the 24-hour cycle of just having to have constant news and yeah. you have to keep. Is that creating a place where maybe journalism is going too far because they need stories constantly and they need to be entertained? And they're not just so maybe there's a bigger problem um, that causes some of this. But, yeah, it's, it's a concern because we don't want this to chill good journalism. Well, here's the question, though. Do you think there's a double standard? Oh, With, yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
sure, there's a lot of people that want to take Fox down. And so there's a lot of people that are happy that this is where this is that they got taken to court, that they're getting caught on the carpet. I saw a headline that said something like um, this wasn't going to save America from Fox either way or something. It was basically like uh, saying like as if America needs to be saved from a news network. Um, But it just shows you the left wing angle against Fox News. So, yeah, I do think there's. Without a doubt. Because I think as conservatives, we feel like, yeah, we do want accountability. We want truthful reporting. But we also want it applied to CNN and Fox News. And there's just been so much egregious. um, Yeah, I would like to see where I guarantee you there's a lawsuit. Whatever this standard was met, I guarantee you other news outlets like CNN and others have had the same kind of situation and just haven't been caught on the carpet with it. I think that's what it's going to take for people to regain Trust and institutions and media and things like that. Yeah, I think that's right. uh, Moving on then to our next topic. All right. I just think this is really interesting. You know, Elon Musk did this really um, fascinating interview with Tucker Carlson. But the thing that got the most. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of Fox News, um, the thing that got the most headlines was his kind of prediction or dire warning that there was potential for destruction of civilization through artificial intelligence. Yeah, it's a big statement. Um, You know, he's been kind of, this is not the first time that he has said AI could cause some problems. What's interesting about him saying it is, right, people think of him as like the guy that's ahead of technology. You know, when you think of Tesla and other things that he's been involved with, you think, oh, this is the guy that's out front. And AI is obviously the you know, the height of our technology right now. And he but he has been clear there are concerns. Now, what's interesting is he's also still pursuing research and creating a competitive company in AI. So he's saying we're concerned, but we're also doing our own work to create our own. I hope that's because he wants to create an ethical version of that. He, he His concern is, look, we're going to get to a point where technology could outsmart us. Um, it could make our jobs obsolete. I mean, he kind of lays out some yeah. of that. And and he said it's it's more dangerous than other things like self-driving jumps. cars. Yeah. So I think he's raising a good point. Yeah. And in fact, he said that he was looking at something called truth. Yeah. Uh, What's he going to name his GPT? Yeah. He said truth, GPT, um, like that it was going to have more compassion for human beings or something. Uh, But the interesting thing from maybe more of a theological or a biblical perspective that we would have is that, you know, he seemed to have this real fear level that because he's kind of looking at it on a plane of that computers or digital intelligence could um, get to an equal level as human beings and that it would be kind of a survival of the fittest scenario and maybe they would win. And you kind of got the feeling that that was his real view. But as Christians, you know, we really have this assurance that there is a divine plan that human beings are not equal to anything that we would create um, because we have a divine sacredness in God's eyes. There's something that you cannot replace there. So I, I think we don't have the same level of terror when it comes to will AI destroy civilization? I mean, I think we want to have responsible safeguards um, because we see the harms of Facebook and Instagram and all that on our youth. But but I don't know about if we think that the world's going to end that way. But what was really fascinating was his spiritual perspective, because Tucker Carlson actually kind of picked his brain on, do you think human beings have a soul kind of line of questioning? Let's just listen to that real quick. Yes sentimental and reflective it gives us a moral sense longings can a machine ever have those things can a machine be sentimental can it appreciate beauty well i mean we're getting to into some you know philosophical areas that are hard to resolve 
um, you know, I, I, I take somewhat of a scientific view, view of things, which is that we, we might have a soul or we might not have a soul. I don't know. Um, it feels like I, we have, a, I feel like I've got some sort of consciousness that exists on a plane um, that is not the one we observe. Yes. That is certainly how, how I feel, but it, it could be an illusion. I don't know. Well, um, that's an interesting comment he makes there. It, it makes me a little sad that he's so uncertain of our our soul and the fact that he just doesn't, I mean, clearly from a Christian perspective, he doesn't really have a relationship with God and doesn't, you know, doesn't see the larger picture. He thought it might be an illusion. He said it might be just an illusion. I was having flashbacks to my philosophy classes. I was a philosophy major in college. And I just, I remember all the things we wrote about people examining the soul and whether we had a soul and, and, and illusion, you know, could it all be a dream? You know, I was having those kind of, but it makes me sad because I, I, people living with that level of uncertainty that there is something more than just what we see and more than science makes me makes me worried about if there is nothing more um how do you draw meaning how do you draw purpose how do you i just i just the, it just made me a little sad that clip well it is interesting because i think we see a brilliant person like that drawing brilliant from uh, exploration space exploration artificial intelligence but it's just that maybe they would have their hope in those things. Yeah, it kind of makes yeah. you wonder if he's trying to use science to figure out whether there's a God. And I, I would argue all of science does point to a God. But there is this thing called faith. And we, we know that's an important component of, you know, if if you could see and touch it all, is there really faith there? And so, um, but it's interesting to think of AI as he talks about it of, you know, because it would be soulless and it it. it, it how does it really ever get to the point of emotions? I was sort of thinking about animals, right? Because that's the that's the next step of do, doesn't doesn't have that soul, or at least not the same level, of not emotion. the same, right? Not the same. I was sort of thinking like, what? How do you? What would it look like for AI to get to that? But I will tell you, if you've ever tried out, you know, seen how it writes things out, it's remarkable and disturbing how well it can actually try to write in emotion to what you've asked it to. Okay. <laughs> that brings in a whole other level because the, then that's the question, can human beings do the same kind of creation as an animal? I mean, because that, that gets into that's a divine creation as well. So, yeah, that's... I think the point is it should all point to God and we definitely have souls and maybe we can help Elon figure that out over without, time. Without pointing to God, we're just going to have our Tower of Babylon mess and yeah. be all divided. And yeah. so anyway, um, deep thoughts from Victoria Candy. <laughs> Well, before we get to the end of our show today, I did want to give you a chance to bring us up to speed on this important case that's developing out in the state of Oregon. You know, I think this is really going to touch on the concerns of a lot of Christian parents that might want to adopt. Yeah, so um, there's a situation in Oregon where you have Jessica Bates. She's a mother of five children, and she has filed a lawsuit against their um, human services, their Department of Human Services at the state level. She's basically saying that she is being discriminated on or against and banned from being able to move forward with adopting children because she refused to basically say that she would fully embrace and be a part of all the LGBT kinds of things because they violate her faith. And so, yeah, we got a lawsuit underway over Christians adopting. Yeah, she was getting pressure to state that she would acquiesce with using um, a person's preferred pronouns, you know, if the child wanted to go to a gay pride parade, that kind of thing. I think they just, in one conversation, actually gave her a hypothetical would you take your child to, you know, basically be injected with uh, cross-sex hormones if they're trying to transition? 
And she had to acknowledge that she would not be able to do that on a couple of levels on her, on the faith level, Christian faith level, but also because she felt like it was kind of, it was pretty much tantamount to child abuse. Yeah. I, I, that specific example is just so disturbing because there are so many parents that think that is child abuse and that it is wrong. And so the idea that they would throw that at her and say, you can't adopt because you don't think it's good for kids to be used as scientific experiments, which is how I view gender transitions at kids. We don't know enough and we know that God made them male and female. And so she's saying, look, no, I don't think that's a good thing. And here it is. You've got the situation where she's trying to adopt actually two civil, like siblings under the under the age of nine and I sit there and think are you telling me that they have just so many adoptive parents they can just say ah no big deal we don't need you I mean that's essentially what they're saying and they're they're doing it as an entire class of people okay Christians those of you that Mm -hmm. hold to religious faith we don't need you to be a part of adoption yeah I think that definitely qualifies as a litmus test you have to answer these questions right um, tell us what your religion says on this. And it isn't just the Christian religion. Yeah, know, there are secular people who think it's a bad idea also. And, and other religions as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's very disturbing. What are the situation, um, it, you know, this isn't just happening in Oregon. Tell us the situation here in Virginia with our law. And we, we had a similar case play out. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely had a couple come to our law center with this sort of almost identical scenario in the sense that they basically wanted to move forward with foster and adoption through um, one of our local adoption services in Virginia Beach. And they basically, as they were filling out the questions, were confronted with this, are you going to be fully embracing of LGBT? And they basically said, look, we can love anyone, but we aren't going to uh, encourage this. And that actually blocked them from moving forward. Um, I'm thrilled to say, this is a couple named the Hathaways, and I'm thrilled to say that they came to our law center. Our law center was able to literally threaten the Department of, uh, of um, Adoption out there. They were able to go after them because that's by our laws, that should be illegal. There's nothing in our law that, that mm. would allow you to discriminate against okay. people of faith. So we were able to go, oh, by the way, you are in violation. Like, you cannot do this. And um, thankfully that sort of legal threat has had them be able to, they're allowed now to yeah. be back in the process if they want to, to continue this adoption. Well, as I was saying, this does feel like direct discrimination against parents. And let's just hear this clip of the Hathaways explaining what that felt like personally for them. Their local Department of Social Services denied them. In a recorded phone conversation, the local DSS employee made it clear that because of their biblical beliefs, It would be impossible for them to love and care for any child in a way that was acceptable to the city. The bottom line is we just don't align in our belief system. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. If you don't believe that to the core, how are you able to support a child? When the denial came through, we initially felt attacked. In fact, for me, it was the first time I think I've ever truly felt discriminated against. And in that sense, it was, it was a little humbling. Now you're denying us based on our faith, which we see as a way to help and grow a child. And so many children need that love and care and support, and they don't get it. 
Yeah, I get really concerned about this whole story and and what's going on with this because I'm really concerned when you know that it was actually Christians that were the first to be involved in adoption and fostering because it's a biblical command, care for widows and orphans. And so what concerns me here is that now the government is involved, the government is overly involved, and the government is shoving Christians to the side and saying, no, you can't be a part of this anymore when they're called to do this. Yes, I totally agree because what they're basically doing is giving parents a choice. You can either abandon your faith or agree that you're never going to be able to adopt a child. And that's just not a fair position to put a significant amount of Americans in. Well, and it's also a shame for the children that are on adoption rolls waiting to be adopted because Christians have been a large percentage of the parents who are actually stepping up to adopt and give these kids forever homes. I mean, I've seen these stories of entire, the whole church body stepping up to involve multiple kids, to adopt multiple kids out of the, the social service system. So it's, yeah, that, that's uh, that's counterproductive. Um, but I did want to mention one other thing. Um, that is that I think the left on these issues, especially marginalizing um, Christian parents um, or um, pushing kids into transgenderism, they are they are kind of overreaching. There is not widespread consensus on this among Americans like they want us all to believe. And we know that from this poll that came out this month. It was commissioned by The Economist. You want to tell us a little bit about that, what stood out to you just on this topic anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think on this topic in particular, it's the it's the fact that American parents don't necessarily think that it's good to give kids puberty blockers. I mean, that was the question that was part of their hypothetical scenario. And it's something like 38% said they strongly oppose and another 14% said they somewhat oppose. And I honestly think the more that comes out, the more people detransition and start talking about their stories, the more that people like Chloe Cole and others are out there, the more parents are going to go, whoa, wait a second, this is really dangerous. And so I I think they're pushing on something that's going to backfire on their movement, to be honest with you. Yeah. So I just want to encourage people, keep it up, getting the truth out there. We cannot be intimidated on these issues. The truth is on our side. We are speaking with love and compassion to protect kids. Um, So let's stay strong on these issues and encourage one another to keep speaking up. Well, as promised, we did want to bring you a quick update on where the U.S. Supreme Court landed on this whole abortion pill case. And the long and short of it is that the court kind of returned us to status quo, meaning that the abortion pill can continue to be distributed by mail as this court case continues to play out in our federal court system. And here to help us understand how we got to this point and what's happening next is Michael Sylvester, our litigation counsel for our Founding Freedoms Law Center. This is the first time you've been on our show, so welcome, Michael. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so bring us up to speed. What's going on? Sure, right. Well, I think to be able to understand what's really taking place in this litigation, I think uh, a lot of background is necessary. So just to quickly summarize that, um, this initial lawsuit was all about the FDA's approval of the abortion pill called Mifepristone. And uh, what was really at issue were three regulatory decisions. Um, first is the decision of the FDA to uh, approve mifepristone in the first place. A second, its decision to remove several safe safeguards for women and girls who may be taking this medication. And then lastly is the FDA's decision to allow mail-order abortion, where women and girls would be able to obtain this pill via the mail, take it at home without any uh, supervision from a medical uh, professional. Well, let me just ask you real quick on the 
approval in the first place. You know, I've been hearing that the whole issue with that is that it was kind of rushed through. It was it was done in a way that allowed the FDA the, the FDA to kind of treat pregnancy almost like a disease and therefore kind of rush through the approval process almost like um, a more severe issue like HIV. They were kind of treating pregnancy like that to be able to approve this abortion-causing drug. Is, is that kind of the whole problem with them, the way they approved it in the first place? That's, that's definitely a problem that was identified by one of the courts that ruled on this issue, and that is that there's a statute that the FDA used to enable it uh, to be able to go through this regulatory process. One of the laws that requires um, that the pill that's being considered, the new drug that's being considered, be used for addressing significant medical illnesses, severe severe disease, and then the the medication has to provide a significant therapeutic benefit uh, from the disease that's being addressed. And uh, the, the court that was deciding that issue uh, identified that pregnancy is not a significant uh, disease. It's not an illness. Um, so that's definitely one statutory problem yeah, with this process. I would say causing the death of another human being, of course, is not therapeutic. That's probably another issue. But right. but the point is it, it allowed them to, to uh, do this quicker than a normal approval process, right? In, right, in the beginning. Okay. That's right. All right. So, so then what happened after the Texas court uh, – said that all that had to be paused or put on hold. Well, yeah, so the the litigation kind of has two tracks. One is the pursuit of a permanent injunction where the court's going to make a full determination about whether the FDA's regulatory decisions were proper. But litigation takes a long time. So the initial uh, matter was whether there should just be a temporary pause while the litigation uh, pr proceeded. And that's what the, the Northern District of Texas decided to do for all of those three main issues that we're talking mm -hmm. about today. So then the matter went up to the Fifth Circuit. The FDA immediately appealed that, that temporary pause to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and asked for a, a kind of an emergency um, uh, 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 determination that the status quo should remain. And the Fifth Circuit uh, looked at the decision-making uh, process and agreed with the Northern District of Texas in almost every respect. On one item, for the approval of Mifepristone, the court said that's going to get to continue um, as, status, as the status quo. But as for the removal of safeguards for women and girls, as mm -hmm. for the the, the um, approval of mail order abortion, that has to be put on hold while the appeal goes forward. So basically, what the Fifth Circuit said at that point was that the uh, uh, women can still get the abortion pill uh, through an initial doctor's visit, but there's got to be some follow-up visits for their safety that you know had previously been taken away. And some other things, other um, regulations in place for their safety as far as when, um, how far along the baby is and that kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah, so the Fifth Circuit was yeah. saying that certain safeguards had to remain in place. So, for example, uh, there was a requirement that there be three doctor's visits when going through this, this medicated process. The FDA had brought that down to just one doctor visit. Uh, um, uh, and there was a requirement for having a medical physician uh, actually be the one who um, um, prescribed this medication. That was uh, done away with. Mm -hmm. There was a requirement that a patient not go through this uh, medical regime um, past seven weeks gestation. And then the FDA brought that up to 10 weeks. And then lastly, there was the requirement that um, the FDA removed the requirement that non-fatal adverse events be reported. Um, so all of those safeguards were to be reinstated according to the Fifth Circuit. And I think those reporting requirements are a key point because... If you are not able to collect data on 
adverse reactions or things happening to women when they take this pill, then you really can't give informed consent because you don't have the data behind it. So I think that was key what the Fifth Circuit did right there. Um, But what happens or what happened next when it went to the uh, Supreme Court at that point? So uh, immediately the FDA appealed the matter to the Supreme Court just asking for an emergency determination that the, the, the order from the lower court had to be put on pause. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court did go ahead and grant that emergency hold. Um, but what is worth noting is that, that that Supreme Court decision only lasts for while the appeal continues. So while the Fifth Circuit continues to determine whether the Northern District of Texas's decision was proper, um, the, the Northern District of Texas's order won't be active. It won't be functional. Yeah. And so it gets a little confusing when we keep using holds um, because it's like it's like a hold on a hold, but... Just, it's a pause and a pause yeah. on a pause. <laughs> um, but just to summarize, what the Supreme Court said is everything has to go back to status quo. There's no um, none of the safety regulations being put back in place. It's it's distributed as it was just before this, this whole appeal. yeah. But you're saying the silver lining here is that the Supreme Court was not reversing the lower court determinations that were good, those are still in play, right? Right, yes. So the Supreme Court was ruling on a separate procedural procedural issue, um, but the determinations from the Fifth Circuit, the determination from the Northern District of Texas, those are still valid opinions by the court. Uh, and there's some really strong findings by, by the Fifth Circuit where the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals observed that based upon the FDA's own data, uh, hundreds if not thousands of women would, according to that data, experience the need for emergency medical care. Um, with myth, by taking mifepristone, and then there's another observation when the northern uh, when when the FDA uh, removed the requirement for reporting non-fatal uh, adverse events, it then relied on the absence of data to make certain regulatory decisions, and the Fifth Circuit called that that approach an ostrich's head in the sand approach. So it was really concerned about it, and in fact, the Fifth Circuit uh, described it as deeply troubling. And so the next thing to watch for are arguments happening next at the Fifth Circuit Court, and we expect those in mid-May. So just to give people, our listeners, some takeaways here, what do you feel like are the issues that they really need to understand are at stake here, especially when these next arguments happen? I think what's really at stake is accountability for the FDA. Can it take actions not in regard for what the law says, for what the approach it should take should be, um, so that is one component. And then another component is safety. Um, there, there's so many medical concerns that have kind of come out during this litigation and are kind of coming to the, the foreground of the public discussion about safety harms or safety concerns that can arise with mifepristone, and that's being addressed during this process. And then lastly, I don't think we should uh, avoid, even though this uh, litigation really isn't about the unborn child, we have to remember that there are two lives at stake here. It's not just the life of the mother, as, uh, as important as that is, but it's also the life uh, of the unborn child. That's so important because we n- now know that uh, the majority of abortions in this country are, are happening through this abortion pill, chemical abortions. Well, thank you for joining us today, Michael. We look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us for Speak Up, Virginia. Remember, we are stronger when we speak together. See you next time. Thank you.